We are up to mitzvah number 61, and today we're going to do five different mitzvahs, 61, 552, 557, and 58, and 570. And of course, the reason why these mitzvahs are so different, the numbers are different, that's how the order in which they appear in the Torah, and the Torah references various related subjects scattered throughout the Torah, and therefore we have one mitzvah that appears in the book of Exodus, four mitzvahs that show up in the book of Deuteronomy, and that's why those numbers are so off. But because they are a similar nature, we like to lump them together for simplicity's sake. Mitzvah number 552 is the mitzvah to get married. Marriage, the marriage ceremony, how it's done, why it's important. Mitzvah number 61 is what happens in the event of a consensual premarital intercourse. Mitzvah 557 and 558 relate to someone who forgoes courtship and forgoes marriage and how they have to pay a fine and what happens in the event that that union is finalized in marriage, then that person would lose the ability to have divorce. And finally, 570 is the prohibition against formalized prostitution in the Jewish communities. So let's begin with Mitzvah 552. It's the ceremony, it's the protocol of marriage, and then we can talk about various perversions of that, that normal system. So this is found in Parshas Tiseitze. It's a mitzvah, according to the Rambam Elise, according to Sefer Chenoch, the book that we're using to guide us through the mitzvos. It is a mitzvah for us to get married. The marriage ceremony itself, what we call today the presentation of the rings, that is a mitzvah on its own. There are opinions that say, no, getting married is not a mitzvah, or at least it's not an independent, discrete mitzvah. It is what's called a facilitatory mitzvah, meaning that it's there to facilitate procreation, the first mitzvah of the Torah, which is the mitzvah, and therefore anything that you do to facilitate a mitzvah is also considered a mitzvah, but it's not its own independent one of the 613. The Rambam, he is of the opinion that Getting married on its own is an independent mitzvah of the mitzvah of procreation, and therefore it is counted in this list that we use to go through the 613 mitzvahs. Now, I want to point out before we begin, and I know we point this out almost with every mitzvah, the average yeshiva student spends about a year studying this particular mitzvah and the related Talmud or Talmud teachings about it. This mitzvah of getting married and the process, the protocol, the procedures of marriage, it takes a large part of the first chapter of Kiddushin, the book of Talmud of Kiddushin, and that's one of the first books of Talmud that students traditionally study, and therefore there's a lot here, and there's a lot to discuss, and of course we're only going to touch on these mitzvahs very briefly. Now, the Ram tells us that before Sinai, before we got the formalized Torah, what would you have? How would marriages happen? People would meet in the marketplace, and if he wants, and she wants, they get together, and they become a marriage. However, once the Jewish people were given Torah, we were commanded that in the event that we want to have a marriage— there has to be a transaction. There has to be some formalization of this union. It has to be done in front of witnesses, etc. And only then does the marriage happen. 
Now, what's the rationale for this? What's the reason? Again, every mitzvah has lots of reasons. And the ultimate reason why we do any mitzvah is because the Almighty tells us. But what is the reason that we can understand why you would have such a mitzvah? So the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we're using to guide us through the mitzvahs, he gives us two ideas as to what the value is to have a formal ceremony, which is done in one of three ways, as we shall see, to have a formal ceremony to consummate or to at least formalize this marriage. Number one, we are commanded to do something, to have a ceremony that indicates the formalization of the marriage and the union before any intercourse happens so that a man should not be with a woman as he would be with a prostitute without any formalization of of any action before it. That's not proper. The proper way to do it is via marriage. A. B. The woman herself... Once she becomes married, she's a married woman. Consequently, she is off limits to every other man in the world. Therefore, it's important for both him and her to know that now she is with her husband. And after this process is done, she's with him, with him alone, unless he dies, unless there's a divorce. And therefore, she should know that now she is no longer available for the rest of the world. And that's going to increase their love and their fidelity and their, 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 their relationship is going to deepen because now they know this is for real. Their relationship is going to be concretized. They have skin in the game. They're invested. They're committed to each other. I want to add that the modern practice of making a prenuptial is literally the opposite of this. It's literally trying to lessen the commitment and to lower the bar for someone to bolt to have as many emergency exits available. And here we see the idea in the Torah that we should try to deepen the connection, deepen the bond. And that's why we have this mitzvah of making a marriage, of making a marriage ceremony. And the Sefer Chinuch adds that there is a tradition for the marriage ceremony to be done with a ring. And the ring is on her finger, on her hand, always. And that's going to remind her, remind everyone that she is a married woman and she is off the market. She's not available for any other man. Now, some of the laws of this particular mitzvah are as follows. Number one, there's three different ways that this can be done. The way that we do it is the man takes an item of value. It has to be of substantial value. It can't be insignificant. And he conveys it and he gives it over to the woman. And he says, behold, I'm going to marry you. Behold, you're going to become sanctified to me. Behold, you're going to be betrothed to me. Any one of those words with this item, with this ring, in accordance with the laws of Moshe, with the religion of Moshe and the Jewish people, he does that. He gives it to her willingly. She's willing. He's willing. It's an arm's length transaction. There's two witnesses to, 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 to witness this. And then the marriage is finalized. She's married to him. He's married to her. They are now formally wedded according to halacha. That's money or monetary value. A similar process can be done with a document, with a contract, wherein the man would write in a contract that same message, convey it to her. She's willingly accepting it. There's two witnesses and that would be also a 
kosher way to facilitate marriage. A third way to do it is via intercourse. This is intercourse that is done with the intention of marriage. And there the witnesses have to be outside for obvious reasons. But the person would have to say ahead of time, behold, I am getting married to you via this act in accordance with the laws. And the witnesses have to be privy, but but not exactly there for obvious reasons. Now, the Talmud says it's actually not a modest way to get married. That's not a modest way to get married. And in fact, if someone does that, the sages would punish him. They give him lashes because that's not the modest way to do it. The correct way to do it is to do it with one of the other two methods. And again, commonly, we do it with the method of conveying an item of value from the husband or from the prospective husband to the wife, and that facilitates the marriage. Now, the Talmud, as the Talmud always does, is going to analyze the nature of every law with absolute profundity turning over every stone, analyzing every potential situation in a way that may make us ask the question, was that really necessary? So here's an example. The Talmud, in the book of Kiddushin, again, page 7a, asks the following question. Again, the text, the appropriate text is, behold, you are married to me with this item, with this with this ring, in accordance with the laws of Moshe, with the laws of the Jewish people, she accepts it. There's witnesses. They're married. Suppose you have the ring. And suppose you have the witnesses. But the man alters the text that he has to say to facilitate that marriage. What if he says, behold, you are married, not to me, but to half of me? Does that still work? Says the Talmud, yes, it still works. That's okay. However, suppose he says, behold, half of you is married to me. So not you, all of you, married to half of me. That's okay. What if he says, half of you is married to all of me? In that case, says the Talmud, she's actually not married. Now, the question that most people, I would say, who are not well-versed in Talmud, the question that everyone's asking is like, wait a minute, who says that? When would this ever happen? This sounds so unreasonable. No one would ever say that. Who would corrupt it? Again, the goal of the Talmud, when it has such questions, which you don't imagine history has even happened even once, is to explain a concept. And when you take that idea of conveying a concept by bringing the most kind of fringe case it's able to convey a principle. But anyhow, the Talmud says there is a difference between this text, you are married to half of me, then, then it does work. Marriage is actualized, whereas if the man were to say half of you was married to me, then the marriage would not be actualized. And the Talmud says, wait a minute, what's the difference? Why doesn't the marriage apply to half and then spread to the whole? What if they say, well, half of you is married to me with half of this coin and the other half with the other half of the coin. There's lots of interesting cases. And I want to add that particular text, that particular question, dilemma in the Talmud, I had the great fortune of writing a an essay, a Talmudic essay on it. So I have a particular affinity for it. 
So again, we see that there is a concept of marriage. It's a mitzvah to do it. It can be done with one of three ways. However, there is the two preferred methods, and then there's the third way, which is not done. And that's the mitzvah 552 of doing a marriage. What about people who want to take shortcuts? Maybe they want other ways of fulfilling their carnal desires outside of the scope of matrimony. And that's where we're going to get the rest of today's mitzvot. The Torah is very, very strict about matters of sexuality. In fact, there are many, many mitzvot that relate to this drive. We're told in Leviticus, actually twice in Leviticus, that if we start sinning in the ways of the Canaanites and do all these terrible sins, and the vast majority of them are sexual sins, then just as the Canaanites were bounced out of their land, so too God will abandon us and will spew us, vomit us from the land because these sins are incompatible with God. These sins are so severe that if we want to have God in our midst, we have to make sure that we are okay in these matters. So what if someone outside of the scope of marriage and certainly not not done with these processes, what if they want to have a relationship with a woman? What are the consequences of that? So, of course, if a woman is married, in Judaism, adultery is a capital offense. If it's a close relative, it could also be a capital offense. Depends. There's different kinds of relatives. Even if it is not a capital offense, it is one of the most severe offenses, and that is car race. I'm going to get caught off with Jewish people. Well, what if a woman is unmarried and she's not a relative, but you are not married to her? Well, then you right away have the problem. What, what if she is a nida? A nida is another woman that a man cannot be with, and that is a woman who is menstruating. A woman would need to purify herself according to Torah law before she would be eligible to be with any man. So if there is an unmarried woman and she's not a relative, so you don't have those problems, but you may have the problem of of Nida. Well, beyond the criminal consequences of such a relationship, there are several additional mitzvot governing the penalties that could potentially be levied upon a person, a, a man, in the event that they decide to engage in intercourse with a woman that they're not married to. So they would have to pay damages. There's the damage of shame, that the woman gets shamed. There's there's other damages, and these may apply in various cases. There's also the question of, of pain. Is the woman on board with this? Is she willing to partake in this activity? Is she not willing to break in this activity? There's different laws detailing what has to happen. A man may also be obligated to pay a fine of 50 silver coins, and that may change with age. So let's get to the details of these laws. Suppose you have a couple of kids. They get into a relationship. They lose their virginities to each other. What now? So there is a midst of the Torah for this relationship to be consummated in marriage. Now, the way that this is done, and the reason why there's multiple mitzvot related to this, is that would depend on what was the nature of the original intercourse. 
There's one case, it's called seduction in the Torah. The man seduces the woman. She is willing all the way. And that would be one set of laws. What if the woman was unwilling to go that far? Then there's different laws that apply. Even if the man is able to, so to speak, get consent subsequently, even if the consent is subsequently granted, if she was not willing initially, then a different set of laws would be in effect. If the woman was willing all the way, then they could get married. But that union is optional. If he doesn't want, if she doesn't want, then there's no marriage. Of course, in a normal case, marriage can only happen when there's when there's willingness on both sides. The man has to want, the woman has to want, only then there's marriage. Here too, yes, they had a relationship, but if he doesn't want to marry her, she doesn't want to marry him, marriage is not being forced upon them. It has to be bilateral. And what if a marriage does happen? Then all the fines that would exist in other cases, uh, they don't apply. And this marriage takes on the laws of every other marriage in the Torah. Meaning, if they decide it doesn't work for them, they could have get divorced, etc. What if the woman was initially unwilling, she wasn't seduced, even if consent was subsequently granted, that case, the marriage could happen, but there's a different regime governing the, that particular marriage. She has all the cards. If she does not want to get married to him, he pays the fines, the various fines and damages and all that, and they go their separate ways. If she is interested in marriage and he is not interested in marriage, then one of the laws of the Torah is that she could compel him to marry her and he cannot divorce her. And that's mitzvah 557, 558. Positive mitzvah, negative mitzvah. Positive mitzvah is that you get married, and again, then the fines do go away. But she could compel that even if he's not interested, and he loses the normal ability to be able to divorce. Divorce, just like the marriage, is unilateral. If she wants to get married, she gets married. And if she wants to get divorced, she could force the divorce, unlike normal cases where things have to be bilateral. Now, of course, the Talmud gets into the various questions. How do we determine the exact nature of the consent, etc.? That's a big discussion in the Talmud. How do we know exactly was this willing all the way? Was this partially willing, etc.? Now, the commentaries add that there is a very deep logic behind this mitzvah. Again, the Torah has a prescribed way of how to go about this. You want to make sure that there is marriage instituted ahead of time and everyone's on board, everyone's willing, everyone is signed on to this venture. In the event that people get a little a little frisky early or there's a little bit of, of compulsion, in that case, that is someone going off script. And we want to discourage that, to dissuade that. And therefore, a man has to know that if he tries to go ahead and be a little bit too eager, then he may end up in a situation where he is forced to marry a woman that he might necessarily want to marry, and she has all the cards, and he won't even be able to divorce her. And that is going to be a very grave deterrent, and again, in the words of the Talmud, suppose she's blind. 
Suppose she's lame. Suppose she's ugly. She is not desirable to him. In the event that he gets too aggressive with her, he has to know that that is going to, that potentially go, is, is going to be initiated and therefore that would be a deterrent to ensure that uh, men don't act too irrationally and too aggressively and uh, control their impulses, control themselves. Mitzvah number 570, again, is very related to this idea, and that is the prohibition against uh, having intercourse without marriage. And the context of that is the verse in, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, there should not be a Kadesh and a Kadesha amongst the children of Israel. What exactly is a Kadesh and a Kadesha? Is this a reference to any form of premarital sex, or is this only a prohibition against prostitution? That's a discussion in the commentaries. Rashi, for example, tells us that a word Kadesh means a man who is always available for intercourse. And the word Kadesha means a woman who is always available for intercourse. We would call that prostitution. The Ramban, he disagrees with that. He says, if so, then a spontaneous fling would not qualify. So he has a different way of understanding what exactly that means. But the Rambam explains that there's a distinct prohibition, 570, which is oriented around having an institution that is a formalization of indecency. In fact, he even adds that this is going to be criminally punished with lashes. So again, it's a very related mitzvah, and the Rama himself explains how it's different. One of them is more like spontaneous, and one of them is when you have some sort of formalized institution of prostitution. I want to conclude these mitzvahs with a little bit of a perspective on this very important subject. Of course, we believe that physical pleasure, even carnal pleasure, is not something that we distance ourselves from. We don't believe in adopting an ascetic or monastic lifestyle. It's not a Jewish ideal. We believe that the Almighty gave us pleasures to enjoy. Physical pleasures, of course, spiritual pleasures, even carnal pleasures, but to enjoy it within a certain context. And in fact, the Talmud actually says the following shocking statement in the book of Sota, page 17a, Says Rabbi Akiva, a man and a woman, if they are meritorious, the Shekhinah, God's presence, is amongst them. But if not, if they're not meritorious, then a fire will consume them. And what this means is, the Hebrew word for man is ish, aleph, yud, shin. The Hebrew word for woman is isha, aleph, shin, hey. Both of them have the letters aleph, shin, which spells ish, which means fire. The man has the yud, the woman has the hey, ish, aleph, yud, shin, isha, aleph, shin, hey. The letter yud and hey spell the name of God. If they are meritorious, God is amongst them. However, if they're not meritorious, if God is not present, then all you have is ish and ish, fire and fire. If you take the name of God outside of the name of man and woman, 
then all you have is fire, and that's going to consume them. Well, this is telling us an amazing insight, that the peak holiness that we can attain is in marital intimacy. But in the event that that is misappropriated, then the fire of lust will consume us. And it's interesting that in the area where we have so much potential for holiness, that is precisely the area where the Yetzirah puts its crosshairs upon us. Wherever there is the opportunity for peak holiness, there's also the greatest likelihood of the Yetzirah interfering and trying to disrupt this holiness. You think about it, the holiest people that have ever existed, the holiest person that has ever existed, is Adam before his sin, and he does his grave sin. And then you have the Jewish people experiencing prophecy at Sinai, eating manna, doing the golden calf. The greater someone is spiritually, the greater the holiness that they have, the greater the Yetzer Hara is. And even within a person, the greatest area of a person for connection to God, that's where you have the greatest attack, incursion of the Yetzirah. What's the area of the greatest human potential? We're creating the image of God. We could be like God. God is a creator. We could also create on our level. We could bring humanity. We can make new humans. What an amazing skill we have. What an amazing opportunity for holiness, for eternal holiness. The first myth of the Torah. Think about it. It's not by chance. First myth of the Torah is to procreate. What an amazing opportunity we have to be like God. When the when the Yetzirah sees that, there's so much holiness that is specifically the area where he targets. Because we have so much opportunity for holiness, we have the effect of the Yetzirah trying to undermine that and therefore, we're given so many mitzvahs to remind us, here is where we can become great. Here is where we can become sensational. In fact, the Rambam even says, to the degree that a person overrides, overcomes his Yetzirah, overcomes temptation, that is the degree of righteousness. So we have these mitzvahs. These are mitzvahs that tell us the context of a very base, a very basic, shall we say, desire and impulse and on one hand we have a great opportunity for great holiness and there is the likelihood of the answer trying to disrupt that in all kinds of different ways and we have the mitzvahs to govern us to guide us to make sure that we don't make grave blunders my email address is rabbiwalbajima.com you can email me with any questions any comments any feedback whatsoever